0: Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 348. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week we bring you Doubleheader 16. Two great stories by one fantastic author. The author we're featuring in Doubleheader Special number 16 is Leanne Yim, with two original stories called A Forest Grew and Bathhouse Fish. Leanne lives in San Francisco, where she co-edits the speculative literary journal The Golden Key. Her works appeared in places like The Nation, Nanofiction, New Haven Review, Toasted Cake, and Verse Kraken, and we're happy to have her here with her first appearance on The Travelcast. So, without further ado, we bring you A Forest Grew, followed by Bathhouse Fish by Leanne Yim. It is 5 a.m., and all across town the shops are finally closing. When we step outside the pub, there are a lot of police on the streets, milling around, seemingly without purpose, moving the way that big fish do in a shallow pond. They warn us that foot traffic through the town is no longer allowed at this time, and then they follow us to make sure we get off the streets. Now what? None of us wants to return to our bedsit. "'Here, gathered under the street lamp, Yaz shares something she heard on the train from the previous leg of our expedition. "'Nearby, there is an unmapped, unofficial forest. "'We decide to cab part of the way, and then hike the rest of the distance. "'We have to try three different cabs before the fourth agrees to take us.' too far, we were told twice. The third shook his head and drove off without unlocking the doors. The fourth driver will take us because Eben promises a hefty tip up front. The forest, Yaz tells us, is unofficial because it used to be a tree farm. Then the owners abandoned it when they moved away. That was over five years ago. Everything has been left to grow on its own since then. It has not been reclaimed by the state, and because it was private property, there are no clear details about it on any map, no contour lines, no hints at scale or topography. We wonder what sorts of trees the farm was rearing. In this country, larches, fir, alders, and oak thrive. If he knows, the cab driver does not volunteer any information, nor offer any conversation." The cab driver lets us out sooner than we expected, moorland on either side of the road and an uncertain light lengthening across a streaky sky. He says we can get out here and walk, or he'll drive us back if we want. We get out. Eben pays him. He locks the doors and turns off the cab lights and leaves without looking back. It is 6 a.m., and a light mist has started to fall. This has happened every morning since we arrived. It will stop anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour. It renews us. We feel as though we are peeling back sheets of mist to access the forest, and we are determined to explore. We plan to walk to the forest, take photographs, then hike back to the main road. By then it will be full morning, and we can hitch a ride. We strike off the road into the brush. The trees here, normal wild ones, are spread thinly, stretching up like stripped fence posts. Drifts of cloud or maybe smoke are snared in the top branches like cotton candy wound around a spire. We have, between the four of us, only two bottles of water held in carrie backpack. Maybe we should try collecting dew, Eben says. I did that as a scout in training." but it's impossible. There are no leaves, nothing bracken. The ground is soft, dark, bare. Our footsteps crater the dirt. The trees are gathering closer. We pass through a graveyard of mechanical things. Engines, a thresher, sheets of beaten metal, a machine for digging bottomless holes, surely." The wood has swallowed the metal heap, iron rusting into thick moss. We tread carefully, for the ground is littered with broken metal and glass shards. In one place, four cars are stacked on top of one another, their weight having driven them deep into the earth. Whether they are sunken or if the earth has risen is unclear. We snap photos. Yaz climbs to the top of one heap and crosses her legs to the side, posing like a mermaid on a bough. These plane trees crowd now. Through their meager cover, we watch something huge and antlered. We're not quite sure what it is exactly. Taken down by two wolves. Are they wolves? Something lean and furred. Fifty meters away, maybe even nearer than that. This close, we ought to be able to hear them, but their frenzied feasting is silent and savage. Fortunately, Eben spotted them and stopped us from venturing closer. We pass a house with barred windows, an attachment to an old watermill that's collapsed on its side. The front door is gone and the house gapes open. Don't go in, Carrie Ann begs. Oh, just don't. She almost has one of her hysterics about it, so we don't because it's not worth enduring one of her episodes. We peep into the windows instead, but there isn't much to see, just wooden furniture chewed up and worried by dust and wind. In the corner of what must have been a nursery, a crib, some toys, there is a pile of leaves and twigs willfully arranged in some kind of nest or burrow. Whatever made its home there is not present. We back away and continue on. Finally, we reach the tree farm. No, so much more than that. A forest forest. Incredibly, it is still contained behind a three-meter-high fence all around. Wind must stir the trees because the army of them seems to be quivering in place against their fencing. We find a section where the fencing has been knocked down and enter the tree farm. Eben takes a picture of the broken fence. We take three steps inside, and had we looked back, the fencing would have already been lost to us. "'Roots are soldered into the black beneath our shoes. "'The trees make the inside of the forest appear green and murky, "'as if we're at the bottom of the sea. "'The flash from Eben's camera wavers like it's underwater, too. "'We are awash in this sea of trees, "'where the moving leaves seem to swim, barely tethered by their stems. "'The tree trunks are not huge, not like the redwoods we visited years ago.' "'They are not so gigantic as that, but they are endless. "'They are evenly divided and lined, all of them even-aged. "'Their immensity comes from their innumerable duplication, their startling sameness. "'This was probably a Christmas tree farm,' Yaz says. "'None of us have seen Christmas trees like this before.' "'Well, they haven't been taken care of, have they?' Carrie Ann replies. "'They haven't been properly cultivated.' They don't need caring for, says Eben, trust me. He implies that perhaps the owners hadn't been taking care of the trees, but containing them, checking their growth. The trees smell ashy, like luck-blood oranges and unmelted snow. Their bark is warm and shivering, intricately patterned like overlapping scales. We think we can hear something coursing inside them, though what we do not know. Carrie Ann believes the trees are secreting something. What? Eben asks her. What is it? Don't just make things up. At last she says, I don't know. Something mournful. Occasionally, we glimpse something dangling in the trees, like a special fruit. They gleam like the hard enamel of teeth and wink out when we turn our heads, so we can't be sure, but they are always there in the corners of our eyes. Eben says something is breathing honeyed breath down his neck and has been for the last mile or so. Time drips, limpid and feeble. Occasionally, something damp strikes the very center of the tops of our heads. Twice, Carrie Anne has to pause to wipe her glasses on her shirt. Soon, the glass is irreparably smudged. She has trouble seeing out of them and trails far behind us. When we take a rest, taste our dwindling water, and chew on fruit that's turned soft and black after only a day, Yaz states in a marbled voice, These trees live on meat. She won't say more, no matter how the three of us prod her. Do we walk across a ladder of bones? What have these roots steeped in for so long? And as we walk, we dream the same dream. The grooves left by the plow are narrow but deep. Father and daughter lower strangers in the hollows, and the bodies are laid to rest in the rifts. Soil covers them like snowfall. Roots plate between the limbs. Worms dine for centuries, while in the between years, cicadas sip the sugaring sap and become bloated. The forest has closed and the trees spied upon us. Hard to say if we're walking in rings. Carrie Anne sits down and refuses to go on. "'Send someone back for me,' she keeps saying. "'I want to rest. Come back for me.' "'While we try threatening and enticing her to get up, Yaz walks away. "'Only a small distance, but she is gone in this plantation. "'Eben swears he saw her vanish into the sleeve of a tree. "'No, she just disappeared behind it. Of course he's mistaken.' We leave Carrie Anne and go to the tree. We press our ears to it, feel it trembling roughly back at us, and mixed in with the sound of streaming, there's a thin, high voice that has been fermenting. We listen for a long time, trying to make out the words. Bathhouse Fish by Lian Yim. The fish were restless. They spun the water mossy dark until the pond was the color of crushed bottles. Pei held onto her sister's hand. They peered down at the water. This morning, their mother opened her eyes and said she was too cold to get out of bed, so their father said they would spend the afternoon at the hot springs. The rain brushed the mountains into silky, jeweled bright green, and when their father rolled down the windows, the car was filled with the smell of eggs. It rained the entire drive into the mountains to the bathhouse. There were two buildings darkened by rain, continuously breathing steam, the bathhouse built over the hot springs, and a restaurant where many sleek, spotted cats were always twining around the table legs. Whenever the weather turned unexpectedly cold, the bathhouses were flooded with guests, families crowded under the narrow overhang. There was no room for pay and ivy there, so they walked away while their parents held their place in the swelling line. Behind the bathhouse, there was a pond. Water lilies and hundred-petaled lotuses covered the dark water in a dense colony. Some of the leaves were large as extravagant cakes. The pond held some of the biggest fish they had ever seen. Whiskered orange, yellow, and white, some had patches of different colors, like swimming flowers in perpetual bloom. Looking at them, Pei started to crave persimmons. A bathhouse attendant sauntered over to them from his post, chewing betel nut. "'Like them? We call them the giants.' "'What kind of fish are these?' Ivy asked." The porter replied, but nearby in the banyan trees, cicadas put up a crescendoing, thunderous drone just as a motorbike rushed by on the street, and also someone from the restaurant kitchen dropped something, sounded like an entire tray of china plates. A stray dog put up a howling, dancing song. They felt it would be impolite to ask him to repeat himself, so they didn't. The giants were broad and fat, generously whiskered. They cut across one another and occasionally the water churned. The pond glittered. The attendant told them the owner brought them over here from abroad and had this whole pond built special for them. They watched as the attendant retrieved a small plastic shaker. He thumbed the top flap and rained fish food over the pond. The water heaved and broke open. In no time at all, the food was gone. The surface picked bare. You know why their food floats? To make them come to the surface, pay guest. Right, so we can inspect them, see if they've got injuries or sickness or something. Do fish get sick? Not these fish. They can live up to two hundred years. The longer they live, the longer the wish ripens in their belly. Pei and Ivy looked at one another. Sure, said the attendant. The older the fish, the bigger the wish. You catch one in three minutes or less, the wish is all yours. Not everyone can catch them. In fact, most people don't. People used to come all the way across the country to get them here. This is the only place that does it. They don't so much anymore since we stopped advertising. So these are magic fish, huh? So what can we wish for? "'Anything. Look, I can see you're interested. "'The rules are you can only have your hand, and you only have three minutes.' "'He pointed at an ornate clock on the wall with a brass face. "'Pay stepped out of her sandals and rolled up the cuffs of her pants. "'She stepped into the water. "'The water was deep, and the fish curved around her ankles. "'One of them kissed her ankle. "'When she was ready, she slipped both hands in the water.' Now the fish scattered to the far corners of the pond. She took her hands out and slowly they drove close again, wheeling around her, fins fluttering. The water churned uneasily from their movement. Pei plunged her hands in like a dropped knife. Water slapped around her limbs as the fish dodged. She clawed at their bodies, scales slipping off onto her fingers, coating them in silver that grayed once she brought her hands out of the water. The fish sliced this way, that way. Their whiskers whipped long trails through the water. Her sister called, You can do it, Pei. Get him. Pei tried. She grasped scales. Her hands gleamed with metallic sheen. They were shedding their skin on her. A heavy body turned under her hand, and she grabbed it. She clamped her hands on the wet, sloppy weight of its body. "'Don't let go,' her sister said, and then she screamed it. "'It's okay to choke it,' said the attendant. "'You need to kill it one way or another.' Pay dug her fingers into its sides, squeezing. Somehow she heaved the giant onto land. It was still alive. She wished it were a little less alive. The fish thrashed, its eye unblinking and limpid. She could never eat fish eyes again. She thought it made a keening noise. Ivy was there, too, kneeling on the floor, pinning it as flat as they could by its delicate fins. Then the attendant was on hand with a knife. He had several for this specific purpose. Pei's hands were trembling. She took the knife and slipped it through the soft belly. A mess spilled forth. "'The wish lay there like a seed, a kernel, smaller than their mother's wedding ring. "'Not one of the big ones,' the attendant said. "'The fish had been too young. "'The fish was all around them, Pay's hand stung from a thousand invisible cuts. "'Ivy cradled the wish in her cupped palm. "'What do we do now?' she asked. "'What do we do?' But the attendant did not reply. He had taken up a mop and was pushing it at the remains of the fish. And that was our doubleheader. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's close things out this week with our TwitVic winner. 100 characters exactly, not counting spaces, by first-time winner BeachBum21K. Here goes. She's alive, but they'd dress me up too, and then tea parties and dollies till we die. But I want her. I need her. She's mine. 100 character stories we call them twabbles we have a weekly contest that we run through our forums at forums.drabblecast.org. you can post in there you might be next week's winner follow us on twitter at thedrabblecast all right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, The Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Tell a friend about The Drabblecast, write us a review on iTunes, spread the weird. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Travelcast art director Bo Kyer. You can find Bo's awesome work at bokyre.deviantart.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, the grooves left by the plow are narrow but deep.